Hello and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. This week we're discussing the government's stated ambition to become a science superpower, what that might mean and how we might go about it. With me to discuss that are Professor Graham Reid, Chair of Science and Research Policy at University College London, and Professor Sarah Main, Executive Director of the Campaign for Science and Engineering. Welcome both of you to the podcast. Good morning, Graham. Gra- um, Gavin. Hello, Gavin. Graham, let me start with you. And, and let's start with this phrase, science superpower. Where does it come from and how does it fit within current UK policy on science and innovation? So the phrase science superpower has been used in relation to China and the United States in earlier years. But more recently, it's gained traction as the headline for an important policy by our government to drive up investment in science from all sources and to increase the emphasis on science both in the public and private sectors. It's been a widely welcomed initiative and the phrase itself has clearly got traction because we see people in and out of government using that phrase uh, again and again. So let me ask you, this phrase science superpower, some people seem to like it, some people seem to like it less. You've been talking to a lot of people about it. What have people's reactions been to this idea of a science superpower? Yes, we've had a really wide variety of reactions um, to the phrase, and it's been really enriching for Graham and I to hear so many different perspectives. As you might expect in a community which is you know, evidence-led and is used to definitions, quite a lot of the reactions start with the definition. So some people might say, well, I I don't know what it means, but I find it exciting. I want to be a part of it. Some people, as you say, will say, I I don't know what it means, and I find it more more challenging, a difficult phrase. Some of the questions and queries we hear around it relate to the word science. What does that include? You know, does does it stretch to humanities? Does it stretch to engineering? And so on. Uh, and the term superpower. So we, I think we've heard quite a, a number of reactions uh, where people are uncomfortable with the phrase superpower and um, feel that it may cause challenges in, in wider international relations or that it's not a very inclusive phrase and it has overtones which um, they're not comfortable with that are somewhat historic and, and outdated. Another interesting angle on it is that one can't bestow the um, title of science superpower on oneself, that actually it's something that other people will say that you are, and you you can't just be a science superpower by saying you are. And finally, I think there has been acknowledgement that uh, by, by many people that it is a political slogan, recognition of it as a political slogan, and recognition that it has won wide support. Those are reactions from people that we've spoken to in our roundtables and interviews. Um, We've also had a look at some media and external voices quoted in the media. And there we see large companies reflecting back the science superpower language, often associated with a promise of future investment. So um, indicating that they want to align with the science superpower mission, that it may cause them to invest further, 
Um, and we've seen this being quoted in some of the um, financial uh, broadsheet newspapers and others in, in devolved nations as well. So Sarah, Graham and yourself have been conducting a project over the last few months on this published ambition by the UK government of making the UK a science superpower and what some of the choices might be along the road to that status. Can you tell me a little bit about the project and, and what you've done? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Graham and I started off talking to each other about the phrase science superpower and what it meant. And we quickly thought what we'd really like to do is talk to a much wider range of people to get views from across the sector, from academia and industry, from all parts of the UK, uh, from funders, charities, uh, diplomats and others, and, and really gather some views about what science superpower means to us now and what we'd like it to mean, what, what, how we would like the UK to be as a science superpower, and to surface and explore the choices facing policymakers along the journey to that destination. We have set about doing this by conducting interviews and roundtable discussions uh, convened by some organisations which are supporting us in our work, uh, namely the British Academy, the School of Advanced Sciences and the Wales Innovation Network. Um, they have helped us convene these discussions <coughs> at which we've really asked only two or three main questions. One is, what does science superpower mean to you? The other is to explore scenarios of a UK in which we have reached the science superpower status and to explore the pros and cons of those different scenarios and then to think about and explore the tensions and choices between them. Mm. Uh, and we're very grateful to the Foundation for Science and Technology for um, hosting the, the podcast and, and a webinar in which we can just continue that discussion before we uh, try to uh, put our thoughts together in some kind of publication. Fantastic. Well, you mentioned that you're asking people what a science superpower mean to them and, and some scenarios. And of course, it does mean different things to different people. Graham, can you sort of tell us some of these different scenarios that you've come out with uh, as part of this project? So we've confined ourselves to three scenarios. You can go on inventing scenarios forever, but we've confined ourselves to three. And each of them is a sort of caricature of how the research and innovation system might look, how the country might look. Sarah puts her finger on it when she says that it's about us choosing what sort of future we want, rather than just letting it happen. So our three caricatures are, first, to imagine a future in which the shape of research and innovation stays more or less intact in its current form, but everything gets bigger in equal proportion. Our second scenario is one in which public spending in the future remains pretty much as it is now, but we see a major growth in investment by business. So business R&D expands very considerably, while public spending remains more or less as it now stands. And our third scenario is one in which the research and innovation system is driven by 
established government priorities in areas like public health, climate change, or defence and security, and that they become big drivers of research and innovation in both the public and private sectors. And we realise that these are great simplifications, but they're, they, we have found that they provide a good stimulus for debate. Well, let's start that debate a little bit here with your three scenarios and explore them in a little bit more depth. They've obviously got pluses and minuses to each of these. Um, Sarah, talk me through a little bit the pluses and minuses of the different three scenarios. We have been gathering views and tried to simplify them into a couple of major sort of benefits and, and potential challenges of, of each of those scenarios. So we have come up with actually a fair number of those. So just to sort of simplify it down for the purposes of this conversation, I'll just give you a couple of examples. So in the example that Graham described first, which is one of equal expansion, everything grows by the same proportion. We were somewhat surprised by some of the enthusiasm for that um, scenario, as we had thought that it was one that was you know, perhaps a little unlikely in terms of um, government priority and policy. However, one of the advantages that, that we heard about was that it could really help embed growth in areas that may uh, feel at risk of further concentration into other parts of the R&D system. So for some parts of the UK R&D system, they felt that that equal expansion would kind of guarantee a growth rate for them, which they could then use predictably. However, one of the challenges of that scenario is perhaps that it is difficult to achieve that transformational scale. So it's difficult to grow the system in equal measure, but to actually at the same time drive transformational change. Um, and there is somewhat of a risk of embedding issues which people find uh, are, are difficult or suboptimal in the system at the moment. So that's an example there. It, just briefly on the two other examples, uh, business expansion and, and government priorities. One of the challenges, for example, in the business investment scenario is one of really kind of a, a free market approach versus a kind of directed investment approach. So if one were to use a policy to drive business investment, such as you know, a really aggressive policy around, for example, R&D tax credits, that might make the UK a very, very attractive place for business investment you may have to accept in that scenario that that business investment would be directed by the businesses to locations in the UK that they chose. And therefore, it might be more difficult for the government to um, direct that investment in line with its levelling up agenda and into certain places of the UK. Finally, on the government priorities, just as an example, an advantage of driving uh, R&D growth through government's priorities such as the net zero uh, campaign, um, health and well-being, uh, so, uh, security and, and sovereignty, for example. One advantage of that is that there's a, a sense of consensus, that we have a democratically elected government and if those are their priorities, then there is a sense of public consensus around those priorities. 
But an immediate challenge we come across when having these conversations across the UK is the question of who's which government priorities. So you know there may be different priorities in each of the devolved nations and administrations than there are in Westminster and Whitehall. So immediately you come up against a, a choice and a challenge in terms of driving through a national policy agenda. So let's talk a bit, little bit about choice because in each of these scenarios it throws up potential choices for national government, potential choices for subnational government and indeed for R&D practitioners. Graham, talk us a little bit through some of the choices that emerge depending on the different scenarios that we're talking about. So the one theme that runs through all of the choices is the changing balance of influence between government, the research community itself and private sector investors. And that balance, which um, at times can feel quite delicate, but has been arrived at in a, a sort of evolutionary or organic fashion to the state we're in now, that balance could be perturbed if we see a radical increase in research investment over a short period of time, as is implied by the government's commitment to reach 2.4% over just a few years. So we're not used to a, a, a rapid perturbation of that balance of influence. The other choice that comes with that is about the balance between ever-strengthening incumbents and some insurgent organisations. So, for example, if we went down a path in which government priorities played a very much stronger part in the direction of research, does that mean that we would see the reinvention of government research institutes, government research laboratories, of the sort that existed around the middle of the 20th century, focused on the missions of individual government departments or collectives? would we see government departments uh, enter the population of research funding agencies so that UKRI would be one of a number of funding agencies? These could be very attractive features of the landscape, let's be clear, but they would change the landscape. It wouldn't be the way it is now. There would be different people funding research and different people doing research. We can sit back and let this happen or we can have a debate about how to make it happen optimally not just to serve the incumbents but actually optimally for a much broader population in the country and just to follow up directly on what you've said who should that debate be with who are the players in this because you would have different people with slightly different views? So we have tried to reach some people that are outside the, the usual community that debates science policy. Now, we, we're, our, our project is, has had a, a finite scale and a finite time, but we have had a conversation with, um, with the US Embassy, who we'll hear from at the webinar 
very interesting perspective from outside the UK. We've spoken to people from the defence community who have a different view on some things and different ways of expressing their view to those in the, in the civil community. And we've made a point of reaching across academic disciplines. This term science superpower can be interpreted to mean the natural sciences, but actually we think there's a considerable advantage in reaching across the humanities and social sciences and arts uh, because they have so much to offer, not least in the development of policy. If I can just add to Graham's comments, the, the work that Graham and I have done has really focused in the R&D sector and stakeholders that interact with it in, in some way. Um, but your question about you know, who should be involved in this discussion about you know, what sort of science superpower do we want to be, I think that should rightly extend much more broadly. Uh, and the work that Graham and I are doing is meant to stimulate discussion and to try and encourage people to have further discussion around the choices that are faced and around the end point that we want to reach. Um, I think it will be critically important for the public to have a voice in this and for it to be a matter of political discussion. And that's not something that we've tried to do in this piece of work. Um, but we hope by gathering the views that we have, we can um, stimulate and, and start uh, a wider discussion. I'd add one more thought. I, I, I don't mean to prolong this one point, but Sarah mentioned earlier about the, the balance of influence of central government and devolved. In many areas of public life, we have seen progressively more devolution at national and regional level within the UK. But we don't yet have chief scientific advisors in local and regional government. So there are questions about the way that science policy is developed, priorities are defined, funding is delivered and research undertaken that could take account of devolution to a much greater extent than we've seen so far. That would have quite a profound effect on the, the research landscape. Mm. So I want to take the discussion very slightly. We focus a lot on investment, and clearly that is a, a major part of all of this. But there are factors around the side that also affect some of these choices. I'm thinking skills on the one hand, and also international collaboration and, and what we do in relation with other countries. How do all of these factor in to some of the choices that we've got to make? Sarah? This is a you know, critically important part of the development of the UK as a science superpower, if you like that phrase, or you know, its transformation into a more R&D and innovation intensive um, economy and culture. I think one of the prizes and you know, desirable outcomes of the conversation that, that we're having today is that it could better enable policymakers to embed complementary policy strands that will really help better deliver on things like skills and international collaboration alongside the investment goals that are already set out by the Treasury and therefore that the journey to becoming um, a science superpower or a more innovative UK will be one that is enriched by having a more sort of coordinated approach to all the different angles one needs to take. So you know, clearly, and we've heard this a lot through our conversations, you know, thinking about people and thinking about what are the 
skills opportunities and skills needs will be critically important both through formal education but also through you know reskilling lifelong learning informal routes of education um, and and clearly as we have left the European Union and the, and the UK's government tries to establish the UK's place in the world um, thinking about the confluence of uh, agenda on uh, for R&D on our international partnerships and collaboration and the national agenda in terms of global partnerships and global Britain is an opportunity and certainly something that should be explored openly. So we have summarised in our work the investment goals of the science superpower ambition but it is much more than that and can be measured and assessed by a whole variety of, of metrics. Um, including those on things like skills, education and attainment. So finally, um, what's next for the project you've got so far? What are the next steps to uh, finish it off? So we do not want to let this project roll for as long as it could. We have found such stimulating discussions and such an appetite for discussions that we could keep on going. But we think that the right thing to do is to draw together the threads of the discussions we've had and encourage a wider debate on these points in a wider community. So our plan is to draw together the conclusions of our project during the later months of this year, publish some work through the good offices of the Foundation for Science and Technology and then step back to allow others to pick up the threads. Well, let's see how all of that progresses. That's all we've got time for today. But uh, Professor Sarah May, Professor Graham Reed, thank you both very much. Thank you, Gavin. Thank you very much, Gavin. You've been listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. My guests this week were Professor Graham Reed, Chair of Science and Research Policy at University College London, and Professor Sarah Main, Executive Director of the Campaign for Science and Engineering. More information about the project that they were discussing uh, is available on the recording of the webinar that was held by the Foundation, and that details of that are on our website at www.foundation.org.uk. Also on our website are details of all our other events, all our blogs, and all previous editions of this podcast. Until next time, goodbye.